Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Hannah Blackiston. And joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Brittany Rigby. Hello. Later, are we talking to Budget Direct's Jonathan Kerr about brand purpose? We're not a fire engine company, we're an insurer. Overcoming dyslexia to have a successful career. But I literally can read upside down, back to front, and I, I've learned to read in a very non-traditional way. And why it was time to kill Captain Risky. Getting a very strong reaction from segments, but then at the same time there were segments that didn't like it. But first, the week's topics. Nine and Seven reveal just how bad the virus has been for their finances. But it was even worse for O-Media. Havas buys Highland Media. And the Masked Singer goes into lockdown. Well, this was the key week in the year for ASX results season. Monday saw O-Media's results. It was Seven West Media's turn on Tuesday and then nine on Thursday. Let's start with O-Media. Um, Hannah, I'm starting to think they were among the hardest hit. Yeah, I don't think you'd be alone in that one. Obviously, Outdoor has been one of the hardest hit across the industry. So this was O-Media's half-yearly results for the six months to June 30. Um, I guess top line, they reported a profit. They reported a loss of $27.5 million. Um, and across that, you know, that's compared to an actual profit. In the previous period, their revenue fell 33% for $205 million across the period. I think when you look at the breakdown a bit more than that, it's quite confronting. Obviously, they've, you know, got their um, business sectored out into commute, road, retail, fly, locate. Almost all of those took a hit. Unsurprisingly, Fly was pretty badly hit. That's obviously their airports, their banners at airports. That took a 45% hit. Yeah, it, it was hard to point out a good news point in there, I think. And I think that's kind of the problem they had. But in saying that, I'm not sure that anyone was necessarily expecting O-Media to suddenly fly, come in and report fantastic numbers. Yeah, and I suppose that was the thing, yeah, just looking at them. I mean, some of them were just shocking um and as you say but well, i say shocking that's the wrong word isn't it because <laughs> there was very little shock involved but horrific um and i think that's gonna be one of the theme of about all the numbers we talk about in a normal year if the company reported those sort of numbers the management would get fired immediately and yet you know this is sort of uh just accepting that they're doing the best they can um and i suppose the the other thing that i found myself looking at and thinking about with O-Media is just how much the share price has fallen. So um, it's about a third of the point at which they start. They they were at the start of the year, which partly I think was the dilution because they 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 did a fundraising right at the start of the the situation, which which effectively gave them enough cash to keep trading through. But obviously, also the um, trading sort of condition. So what what sort of um, mood did you pick up from uh, so Brendan Cook the CEO would have um, done briefings this week what what mood did you pick up from him yeah and it's interesting you say that in any other time management would be let go because obviously Brendan Cook was planning to be leaving Omedia this year but now we'll be staying around to the end of the year and I would not particularly be surprised if we get to the end of this year and they announce he'll be staying around for a little bit longer um, he was surprisingly upbeat, I would say. He pointed to New Zealand, um, where they also have business there, and said that, you know, in New Zealand, they've obviously overcame their lockdown a lot stronger than Australia did initially. Um, and when audiences started to return, O-Media also saw revenue return. So I think that was his big promise, was as soon as Australia is able to start audience return, uh, it'll also see revenue return, and those two are very correlated. However, he did then say it's a tough time to be predicting audiences are going to return, um, especially you know if they look at Melbourne, although he has said the second lockdown in Melbourne wasn't as bad for them as the initial lockdown nationwide was. You know, Melbourne seems to be a bit more buoyant than it has been previously, but I think 
and this is a bit of a theme you'll see across most of my chats um, with the media bosses this week. I think until we know what's happening with lockdowns and border openings and that sort of thing, I don't think there'll be any security there. Well, we'll talk a little bit later on to Jonathan Kerr from Budget Direct about his partnership with Omedia. On to Seven West Media. This seems to be a story of what was always going to be a tough year anyway, even before the virus for Seven West. Yeah, it is a tough year. So even though it feels like a million years, it has only been 12 months since their CEO, James Warburton, came in. Um, And if we all cast our minds back 12 months ago, when he came in, there were some very strong words said about the previous performance of the business. Um, He said it was far too traditional. It needed complete overhaul. He, as far as James is concerned, and as far as the market's concerned, really, Seven's doing that. Seven's got completely new content. It's gotten rid of some of those kind of um, tent poles that it didn't want, and it's brought in all these new ones. Although, James was quick to now, tell it's me. It's worth just explaining because I know somebody asked us this in the comment thread. What's a tent pole, Hannah? I mean, if you're James Warburton, anything's a tent pole. But his main focus is those 7.30 p.m. slots. So you're looking at Big Brother, you're looking at Farmer Wants a Wife which is what James is looking at this year. And presumably uh, it comes from the idea that your tent pole holds up the rest of the tent. Yes. <laughs> um, I think what's particularly interesting in my chat with James, he said that they were the hardest hit by COVID-19 from a content point of view. They obviously lost the Olympics, which there was a lot of conversation about, but they also lost two of those so important tent poles and half of Plate of Origin, which is set to launch on Sunday. Um, but James had some pretty positive words to say about green shoots in the ad market. But we called out in our results presentation, we see the market improving and we can see some good improvement through to the end of this year. And we think, you know, again, it could, um, you know, it could turn very quickly um, as we get into next year and you know, clients are ready to go. So on top of um, his assurances that the market is already turning around, um, James also pointed to they've still got quite a few sales sitting on the table. They've got seven studios, which they're hoping to move by the end of the year. Um, And they're very focused on paying down debt, which they've already started doing. Obviously, debt has been a long part of seven's history. And he also teased four new tent poles, there's that word again, for 2021. So with upfronts coming in just a couple of months, it'll be interesting to see what's on the cards for next year. But yeah, I have kind of reached out to a couple of people since seven's announcement And from what I can see, people think James is walking the walk and talking the talk. So I think come up front season, we'll see more of that. But it's, I think, honestly, the best they could have expected to put out at this point. I guess that's the thing. And and I suppose for him, he's judged in at least a couple of different directions because there is absolutely the, you know, it's a, it's a business which is supported almost entirely by advertising. So having the confidence of that market is really important, but also, of course, just handling that big debt so they they announced not long ago that they'd renegotiated when the debt would come due so that that's won them a a few more months so i think there's about another almost two years if i remember rightly until that becomes due um but presumably that's going to be the real issue is um keeping the keeping the banks happy with that paying down the debt as you say and um I don't know if if the vibe came through during during your conversation with him or what they were saying in the market. Something something I noticed just looking through the through the annual report was um, they mentioned that if the Olympics don't happen next year, then they get back fifty million dollars they've already prepaid. So I suppose my question is, do you think they're now keeping their fingers crossed that the Olympics don't happen? I don't know whether they're keeping their fingers crossed on that because I think if there are more production lockdowns, they are really going to start struggling for content to run. Um, But I've spoken to quite a few people now who are fairly certain the Olympics is not going to run next year. This is in TV land. And if it does run next year, it's definitely not going to run in what you would consider a usual capacity. So I wonder if James has gotten to the point where he's kind of just expecting that money is going to come through. Yeah, yeah. Look, what you could almost read that tone in the uh, in the report. Um, and then the other thing about Seven is, particularly when you go to West Australia, which is where they're strongest, they also have got quite a big exposure to newspapers as well. 
They do. And that's just gone through a review. Um, former Fairfax boss Greg Highwood came in and did a big review across the West Australian news business. James <laughs> would not comment on that review. Uh, when I asked him, he said, everybody likes to write about it, but there's nothing to say yet um, because it just came in a couple of weeks ago. But the focus there is digital. There was um, a big lean in that reporting that you know, digital subscriptions were up. The focus on print was down. They've obviously made some cost savings there because I think they sold that building back in WA. Um, so they're kind of trying to keep their costs as low there as possible, I think. I think they will still stay in print, um, you know, hard for a newspaper business to completely move out of print. But I think keeping those costs really low and continuing that digital strategy is kind of the goal in WA. And on Thursday, it was Nine's turn. Um, Terrible numbers, but again, no surprise. No surprise at all. So the headline that you're going to see a lot around nine was a $575 million loss. That was largely a write down. Yeah, and- look, and it's worth talking about this because there are so many numbers and we so we can, you know, when everyone writes about to- and, and talks about them, they can be quite glib. You know, there's a big headline number of a loss. And what it sometimes means is that the accountant has sat down and said, actually, the stuff we've got in the books, the value of the uh, the, the broadcasting license, et cetera, are worth less now in the future than we thought they would be. Uh, and obviously that's one type of profit or loss. But the other one is, did you bring in more money this year than you spent? And that's, I guess, the other type. Yeah, and I think um, in this case – it was against the value of those businesses. Um, so domain took quite a big hit. Obviously, the property market has been very tough over the last 12 months. Um, Nine's TV business also caused some of that loss. But it was quite interesting. There was an email from CEO Hugh Marks to staff, which um, was then forwarded on to the media, where he said, you may see the headline number reported today as a net loss of $575 million, But it's important to note this number is a result of a write-down it reflects the environment where we are today. It is not a direct reflection of the profitability of our business. I think it must be quite frustrating to have to see that number come up time and time again when Stan was a really good performer in Nine's results. Uh, their digital strategy, which is what they've kind of been focused on for the last you know, little while, has been doing really well. So Stan's gone up across their Metro Media, which is those ex-Fairfax titles. Um, there was an did, increase. Did in- I see that Stan is up to nearly 2 million subscribers now? Yes, I think it was just over 2 million. Um, 2.2 million active subscribers currently. And if we look back at Foxtel numbers that it reported, um, as of June 30, it was reporting 1.98 million uh, subscribers to Foxtel. So Stan has, in fact, overtaken Foxtel um, I also spoke to, when I spoke to Hugh Marks about um, Stan, I kind of said, you know, are you still expecting growth in that business? There must be a point of saturation. And he said Australia is nowhere near at the point that the US is with, you know, multiple subscriptions per household. So he's still expecting those numbers to rise. So if Foxtel is not expecting its numbers to continue rising and Stan is, it probably won't be long before Stan has well and truly gotten ahead there. Yeah, that's interesting. And this week, um, Stan also announced a um, content detail. Um, uh, I haven't got it in front of me. The the Peacock deal, I think it was called. Um, yes, the Peacock deal. Yes, it was a landmark deal with NBC Universal, uh, the Peacock deal. Their logo um, is the Peacock, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, that was pulled on a lot during uh, the investor chat, Stan's content deals. Obviously, Stan did previously have a deal with Disney, which um, fell through when Disney Plus came to Australia. Stan also this week um, puts made a big announcement about original content, said that it was by, I think in the next five years, it's planning to release 30 original titles per year, which is significant investment obviously, in that platform. Hugh Marks did say that that original content is more important to Stan than these partnerships that it has. I do wonder if he's maybe getting in in early to say that as we see more and more of these overseas platforms launch here, that might be a line that he can lean back on. Um, But yeah, he definitely had a lot to say about how important digital is to Nine's business. He was also one of the only media CEOs who would actually give specific comments about the outlook for Q4 of 2020 and 2021. 
Um, the market seems to be taking an approach where um, it's it's sort of preparing for post-COVID and when wanting to go in that direction. Um, and as I said, uh, trading um, you know on a better basis than what we'd anticipated at this point. So, and Hannah, it's also worth bearing in mind that we've talked a lot about nine and their screen content but as a company as well as the nine tv network we've talked about stan you've alluded to domain which they they still own a chunk of despite the fact that it's it's also on the asx um they also uh have radio interests as well now they do also have radio interests so um obviously last year nine took over macquarie media which has now been rebranded to nine radio Nine Radio was very absent in Nine's results, and I think that's because radio has had a very tough year, as I'm sure we would have seen during the radio results. I did specifically ask Hugh about that, and he said, you know, outside of obviously the awful ad market, he's pretty happy with how it's tracking. Uh, He anticipates that when that business starts turning around, it's going to turn around quite quickly. The radio market in general was down 20%. Um, it's also saw its revenue drop, revenue of just over $100 million for financial year 2020. Um, that's down from 131 the year prior. So that's about $30 million drop or a 22% drop. Um, its EBITDA was down to 78%, which is a massive hit. But costs were also down and I think that's probably what nine will be pointing to at this point you know the lower they can get those nine radio costs when the ad market does actually turn around the better an asset it should be for their business next I talk to the man who killed Captain Risky are you a marketer in the automotive sector is your strategy's wheels spinning in mud Failing to get the traction it so desperately needs? Has your live read script got every single automotive pun you can possibly think of? Then grab your tickets for Umbrella's Virtual Automotive Marketing Summit, streaming on October the 1st. You'll glean top insights from the industry's leaders to really drive your marketing strategy to the next level. DD, Destination, Volkswagen, Principles, The Navigators and GPC have already been confirmed and there's more to come. Tickets start from just $55. Go to umbrella.com.au forward slash automotive for more information. Our next guest is something of an anomaly in an industry that usually thinks its marketers are doing well if they're in the job for a couple of years. Budget Direct's Jonathan Kerr has worked for the company since 2005 in an industry that's obsessed with creativity too often for the sake of it. Mark Ritson said of Budget Direct recently, it might not be the sexiest brand in Australia, but it's among the best run. And in an industry that doesn't much like taking risks. JK is the man who killed Captain Risky. And this week, as the charity Code Red Dyslexia Network launched a new awareness campaign for schools to do more to overcome the condition, JK revealed that he had to battle to overcome dyslexia during his own schooling. So JK, welcome. Uh, Lots to talk about. Um, Before we talk about the day job at Budget Direct, let's talk about Code Red, which launched this week. Now, I'd never actually previously noticed, but I was just looking on your LinkedIn profile and it actually says proud dyslexic. Um, how has that affected your career? Oh, I, I describe dyslexia as my greatest strength and my greatest challenge, right? So, um, boy, you know, struggling in school um, to be able to read and put things together probably turned me into a bit of a showman, you know, because I had to make up for uh, the challenges I was having. And so um, I probably learned how to express myself verbally very quickly. But at the same time, uh, it was a terrible battle. And, and the challenge being uh, growing up in um, in England at the time, um, uh, dyslexia was completely unrecognized. In fact, it was described as something someone had made up in America, I think. And so um, if it wasn't for my mother uh, literally teaching me to read uh, letter by letter at night, I probably would have uh, uh, struggled mightily. So, um, you know, that journey um, 
brings you through a lot and uh, and you find your strengths and your weaknesses and um you know there's there's some folk that think um you know there's a bit of think differently that comes through that experience where you have to try and achieve the same thing in a different way and i laugh because when i think about the campaigns i've been involved with at budget where we did bouger bouger so we spoke spoke french to the uh, Australian public and and then we brought in Captain Risky and uh, then we now have Sarge and Jax with Insurance Sold. Um, maybe maybe that comes through in some of the stuff that um, I like to do to gain that attention and then hopefully push brands forward. So it's been a challenge and it's been, you know, um, the making of me as well. And it's something I'm, I must admit, I probably should know the, the answer to this and I don't. Um, once you've been through that process with your schooling, does it affect how you experience reading and writing now or is is this something that you view as in your past inherently um well i always tell everybody the greatest single invention of mankind is spell check um and so when i was coming through and i'm you know i'm 49 this year so this was quite a while ago when i was coming through it was devastating when i was young um, but I managed to kind of get to the point where I could hang in there. And um, and then as I started going into secondary school, there was the advent of computers and things like that. And I basically learned um, to read by memory. Um, so recognizing words, not, not sounds in words. So as you can imagine, when I was trying to write papers and do things, um, uh, you know, back when it was a pen in your hand, that was excruciating. But when I got to use a computer, um, I could get close enough with words and then spell check would show me a bunch of words that I actually recognized them as almost like recognizing a picture. And I knew what it meant. So overnight, um, I, I really fast accelerated through that problem and I really could get stuck into it. And, I, and, and you'll laugh because my, um, my undergrad degree was uh, in um, broadcasting and mass communication so I actually uh, lent on the written word and the spoken word um, as I went through that part of my life so it was really just um, something that's with me today but I literally can read upside down back to front and I I've learned to read in a very non-traditional way and uh, it doesn't affect me and I usually get the disclaimers right on the ads (laughs) <laughs> well the new campaign for code red um it was created by kwp it's called read my frustration features a kid at school battling with his own internal dialogue before a patient teacher intervenes so let's just hear some of that ad now give it another go it's not that hard everyone says it's easy right look closer maybe you're missing something Try to read it, please. You know what's going to happen if you don't. See? They're laughing at us. If you read, they'll stop. Please, they'll say where. Show them you can read. Please. I'm trying, but I can't. I just... Sam? Sam? Give it a try. Let's see how you go. One in ten Australians struggle with the frustration of dyslexia every day, and it often goes unread. To find out more about dyslexia, go to coderednetwork.org. So who is that campaign actually really aimed at? Is it aimed at people's perceptions around dyslexia, or is it for people who are dealing in some way with the condition? I think it's largely an awareness campaign for the broader folk and um and also to create some empathy for the for the people that are struggling with it at the same time so i can tell you um i saw the ad for the very first time on the uh on channel nine during the today show on monday and uh geez that was me I, i i was that boy you know, and I and I felt every part of it. And you look at the reaction we're having on social media is incredibly powerful. And uh, and um, KWP did an amazing job of bringing it to life. But really, the thing is that it's incredible when you think about it. You know, we're saying that one in ten Australians wrestle with dyslexia, right? So to think that that is so pervasive and people experience that level of of, of emotional stress trying to get 
going in education or in their work today um, and the fact that we don't have a program to identify it early and intervene in what is very easy to intervene techniques um, is something that we want Australia first to recognise and understand, have some empathy for FOCA dealing with it, and then talk about, well, this is something we can fix. You know, there's so few things that you can do a very quick and easy test uh, to identify this and uh, and then get some programs in place to help teachers teach it correctly and help people intervene in their daily lives to get through it easier. So it's a, I look at it as it's a very emotive ad, but it talks to a great opportunity uh, where we could affect a lot of futures for a lot of Australians. And you're a director of Code Red. Um, what can the media and marketing industry do to help you with oh. this? That, that that's a perfect segue and and you you'll have to forgive me but um i've been so lucky in my career to make a lot of friends across the media and i'm just going to rattle out the people who've already helped so kwp incredible um U media 9 7 10 foxtel qms uh, JC Deco, 303 Mullen Low, and obviously the mighty budget direct who got behind the campaign as well. But really what they've done is they've lent an ear to the story and they've given us some oxygen to get it out there. And, and, and really, I think um, when we talk about the broader community, um, you know, if, if people can go and share the ad and, and, and get a dialogue going, um, that would be um, wonderful. And obviously, this is our first ever awareness campaign, and what we're trying to do is get on the radar to have a dialogue about the opportunity we have to change this. Now, um, you know, I find that I find so many interesting creatives and people across the uh, industry that are like, oh, I'm dyslexic, or I know a dyslexic, or my child is dyslexic. And, and you go, well, wait a minute, you know, we, we could get together and do something about it. So first share it, talk about it, understand what people are going through by watching um watching the ad but i really want to say um you know i've got so many friends who've stepped in and helped us um to get this out there initially and i'm eternally grateful on behalf of me and obviously uh code red well let's also talk about the day job as well budget direct so i was just looking and, and I, I realized that within the last few days we've hit the two-year anniversary of you introducing Australia to Sarge, who was the successor to Captain Risky. Um, now, I know you're a very data-driven marketer, so by now I'm sure you'll know whether it's working, whether it's worked. Um, so how, is, how has it gone? Are you Two years on, are you where you would hope to be? Well, that's such a good question because I'm so ambitious for us um, that, you know, it's the fourth year in a row with the fastest-growing motor and home insurer. Uh, the growth has been even quicker this year than the previous years. It's our 20th year to have a brand massively outstripping the growth in the market uh, in its 20th year is quite something. And let me say it's on the back of a lot of things. So um, I'm incredibly proud of my team and what they produce in terms of the advertising and marketing. But at the same time, the product is fantastic. And, um, you know, we're in a period of time right now where, you know, um, being able to market, you know, award-winning insurance that costs you less is a pretty good combination, right? So it's uh, important that we get that out there and it's never been more helpful, uh, that product and that offering right now. So it is a bit of a, um, uh, a, rare, a rare opportunity to keep building on what we've put in place. And, uh, you know, Sarge and uh, Jax and the campaign is resonating extremely well and, you um, yeah, so, you, you know, um, we've got a new ad coming out uh, today um, and uh, and I think you'll see uh, the formula is in place and we're having a lot of fun with it. This is and the naughty all- neighbour's dog who seems to have, I'm sure for copyright reasons, you can't call it a lightsaber, but uh, a, 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 an electrical device that cuts things and accidentally knocks down a house. It's a laser sword. Ah, laser sword. <laughs> and. Um, and I suppose one of the things I I I guess I'm really curious about is because is, as I say you've had a you know really sort of long time with 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 Auto in general the parent company Budget Direct and um, Bouget Bouget was there for a long time Captain Risky I think it was about two and a half years yeah. um, four it was four I stand corrected um, what what was it that 
you've achieved since that you couldn't have done if you'd stuck with Captain Rescue? Oh, I mean, that's a great question. So um, we started working on, uh, with 303, we started working on what next 18 months before we actually changed it. And what I said to them at the time was, I feel that I'm seeing us fill up segments um, and we were penetrating segments so well, but that wouldn't have led to our next level of growth. And, um, and you know, I believe at the time we were doing a really good job with Captain Risky in, in what I kind of call, um, you know, the positive negative. So we were very, very strong and getting a very strong reaction from segments. But then at the same time, there were segments that didn't like it. And so the thing is, you have to decide um, how you're going to grow your audience and look into a narrative that actually opens up more people to your brand. And so, but the beautiful thing about having longevity and having success, we were still growing like a weed during that period. But what what happened was we kind of looked at it and we said, well, listen, um, we should work on what's next now before we need it. And I think most campaigns I, I see out there, I, I wonder if they're just the quick change that needed to happen because things were going the wrong direction. Whereas if you've got momentum and you've got great data and information about how well you're picking up ground in different segments and are people considering you, what type of people are considering you, you have time to come up with something better, but you only take it into market if it is better. So we took plenty of time to work through it. And then we unpicked, it's like unpicking a combination where you you try and say to yourself, how can I take everyone I've already got with me, but then add the next layer of growth? And and as you can imagine, Captain Risky was, you know, was absolutely fantastic. But some people, you know, some groups, it jarred with a little bit, you know, because it was so peculiar. Um, and it had a bit of a, I think it had a bit of a male skew as well. And we wanted to have something a little bit more um, diverse and broad with its shoulders. But also we wanted to do insurance solved because we had so much legs with that campaign. And that the idea of that was always in, exciting. And that meant the change. So and insurance solved, uh, does, does that feel like a campaign that you can see running for, you know, might we still be talking about it in another 10 years, do you think? That is absolutely the dream, by the way. So, like, um, th- there's no desire to change in terms of only if we hit some form of ceiling in what it connects with. And and if you think about it, we've just launched uh, motorcycle insurance. And so now we have insurance sold for motorcycle, you know, or car or home. And really, that is our goal. We want to be the solution for you when it comes to your insurance. And and, you know, you all millions of times you would have heard the, the words, you know, does it have legs? And, uh, you know, it needs to have that. And then the store, storytelling and the chapters um, that you tell through the same setup need to have chapters and chapters and chapters. And, if and, you know, we find that they write themselves. You know, it's a real fun process getting together with 303 every time we say we're going to shoot another three big ads or whatever. And we think about just doing the next part of the book. And uh, we usually have more ideas than we have room. So that's where we're going. And um, yeah, you've, you've, you've talked about sort of collaborating with the agency in the process. Um, and obviously it's, it's, it's been quite a long relationship now with 303 Mullen Lowe. Um, now, obviously, as you were getting to the point of sort of moving from Captain Risky and on to Insurance Solved, um, you'd worked with Richard Morgan as the ECD there for a while. Um, and then, of course, Richard went, went, went in another direction to another agency. Um, how was the transition to you for a partnership with another sort of creative voice in the agency? Well, you know, my success is completely based on my team here they are incredible and they make me look clever and, 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 and good. And I can tell you, uh, I would say the same about 303. So um, it was never a one man band and, you know, um, but I can tell you, I think Richard Morgan's amazing. So that's something different, but, but working with Adam and Shane and those guys. Um, this is Adam Whitehead and Shane Larkin. Yeah. So, you know, we work together and we have fun with it. And I mean, look at our campaign. I mean, and then, and then we say, let's get Danny Kleinman to make it because 
Uh, we have now, for readers op- who don't know, listeners who don't know, he's the guy who, amongst other things, has done the does the opening credits for the James Bond movies. Yeah, and but I like the fact that he made Adam and videos better and he made the guinness ad and but he's probably the most famous uh, tv uh, ad director in the world but the thing that's so interesting about that is um you know the fact that we we always wanted to show that we could do brilliant work from here and um and i remember first talking uh with danny about doing uh what we were going to do with insurance solved because uh, you can remember it's an epic launch and all of those things. And he just smiled at me and he said, this is a great one, you know, and you know, you want people that are in love with the process of making a brilliant ad. But the other thing I must say is he understands we need to sell some insurance, right? So, you know, sometimes it can get the love of the art can take over. Uh, whereas we we're budget direct and we have the best, award-winning insurance in Australia, and we're going to find great engaging ways to talk to you about it. And Danny loved that. And so getting back to that original comment, look, it's a team effort. And um, and I love working with all of those people. I miss Richard, but I also have seen the ads we've made since and they're rippers. So I'm happy. And um, uh, talk about the sort of the state of the insurance sector. Uh, we wrote about a couple of other big insurance campaign launches or just, just last week or maybe the week before with NRMA focusing on bushfire readiness, Amy on what they included. You've obviously got a new campaign coming out this week. Um, I, I'm wondering, is it a coincidence or is this just that point of the year where everybody needs to get their ne- next message into the market? Well, that's a good question. I Having gone through the gears 15 times over the years, the sequence of when people come out with stuff is is not always aligned. Um, and, and I would say that there's obviously a window of time before Christmas. So you can imagine campaigns going in now because December is a quiet time for insurance sales. Um, but I would say, though, um, we we like to kind of run our own race. And so, you know, if you see what we did um, since uh, April where – Instead of making, you know, ads about we're all in this together, we did a triumphant 20th anniversary ad and then we followed it up with fun and engaging and meaningful ads that are to do with what people need right now, which is the opportunity to stay covered and save money. Um, so this was the natural pace for us. And, and we made uh, the 20th anniversary ad uh, a long time ago and we made this next one and I've already made January's ad. Um, because we know the messaging that we're going to stick to. I think when I look at what the others are doing at the moment, I think they've reacted more and uh, to COVID and changed what they've done. And then they've decided to get back into their normal routine, which is understandable. And so that's why stuff is appearing now. I think they're kind of coming out of a period where they were talking more uh, to the local situation. Uh, that's not what we did, and uh, we we zig when they zag. And um, you, you sort of alluded to it earlier that you know absolutely there's an underlying thing that was even in your conversation with uh, Daniel Kleiman of we've got to sell insurance. Um, one of the things which interested me, I, I, I guess, about the NRMA campaign, which was was, was done by CHE Proximity, is, is it, it felt like there was an underlying sense of brand purpose, which has become a bit of a, you know, it's certainly become a talking point over the last couple of years. Um, where do you stand on brand purpose? Do you, do you think it's important to have some brand purpose or is it more important to, first of all, send insurance? Well, It's such an interesting thing because when you unpack uh, the drivers of insurance, you know, the idea of um, having trust in that provider is a very high number one, but equal number one is uh, saving money. And so that's a really interesting thing to convey at the same time. Now, there's different ways of going about that. Um, but you can also only fire the bullets that you've got in the gun, right? So the thing is, a lot of people don't also talk about saving money because they don't save you money, 
right? Whereas, um, you know, we hopefully have a, a rare combination of being the most award-winning insurer in Australia that also saves you a lot of money. So really, um, I, I look at the, the, the work, you know, if you look at NRMA or, or look at Amy and, geez, I can see the love and care and attention and I can see that they're working with what they have um, and uh, respect everything that they do. Um, I just feel that uh, the actual messaging that's about us, so we're talking about what Budget Direct does for you. We're not talking about equity from someone else. Right. You know, we we're not a fire engine company. We're an insurer, you know, you know, that type of thing. That's borrowed equity. And and whereas we're talking about what we have as a brand. So our purpose is to be the best insurance company in Australia. And that only comes about if the Australian public think that's the case. And that for us is a combination of someone you can depend on when it's time to pay a claim and people that will try and charge you the least they can to deliver that award-winning service. We've alluded to this a little bit. Um, I was going to ask, um, how is COVID affecting how you do business as a brand? Well, uh, we we went through uh, a change in terms of working with our media partners to understandably move media around uh, quite significantly uh, we're big fans of cinema. We're big fans of outdoor. And obviously, you know, we went to them very early on in the period and we said, okay, you know, um, we don't just, uh, we take our partnerships very seriously. And so we worked out how we could help them get through this period and move stuff around. And at the same time, they understood that we were going to take some of that money at that point and move it into channels, which, as you know, were a combination of television, which became uh, much more viewed again and then obviously we did an, an awful lot in online video etc um, but at the same time um, I'm excited to tell you that we're back on cinema uh, today and um, we have a great outdoor campaign with Ooh, uh going live. Um, so interesting and- timing on the cinema point before we go back to Ooh. so uh, this is the weekend that Tenet reopens yep. which obviously is a very sounds very much like it's one to see on the big screen. So is that one of the ones that you'll be up against, you'll be showing against or ahead Absolutely. of? Absolutely, yeah. So all of that, that comes that comes from having a real partnership with people and talking about what's really happening. And and at the same time, you know, look, you, you, you've, I've been here a long time, which means these relationships are formed and they return. It's, you know, I'm talking to these people every six months and you know that we do all of our media directly. And so the relationships are very strong. So, you know, you, you've got to think about the long term when you've got partners and, and, and you've got to think to yourself, this is pretty tough for these guys right now. So when the opportunity comes back to do something big in outdoor, like we're doing with Ooh, we've got some 3D sites, we've done some real fun stuff with them. And then when you look at the opportunity on cinema, um, yeah, there's going to be a lot of people going to see um, uh, that movie. And obviously it will be socially distant and, and sensible. But at the same time, you know, um, we all play our role in getting through this. And Budget Direct's been incredibly blessed to be successful. And so, yeah, that's how we look at it. We're not here for a, we're not here for a, a one-night stand. We're here for a marriage, right? So we're going to work with our partners, and uh, and I really, really am grateful to them. And I can tell you, all of our television partners and all of those people have been brilliant as well, working with us because we are also a vehicle to show that you don't need to go into retreat. You need to, if you've got that opportunity, show how to go forward during this time. And hopefully, I mean, when you see our new ad, I I just hope a bunch of people will also smile, you know, and enjoy that break uh, that we give them in our in our fun ad. And speaking of the sort of the the media budget, because it and it's really interesting hearing your sort of philosophy about you know feeling you want to do your bit to you know help help these various kind of media owners through what is a really really tough time for them. Do you do you, presumably at the same time you know talking to various people, they talk about the fact that your advertising dollars are going a lot further at the moment because there's that much more of in, inventory. So presumably there's a there's still a negotiation to be had where you want the best possible deal and you'd, you'd like more spots if possible and all of that, while I guess at the same time you don't want to over-exploit that. So how do you how do you find that balance? Well, I mean, consistency. 
I think is the big thing. So you can ask any of our media partners. We have never, ever reneged on any deal we've ever done. You know, you hear about people doing deals and then they have a deal and they commit to a certain amount. And I forget COVID. COVID's completely different. That's a completely different world. But in normal uh, um, trading, uh, we always stand by the deals we do. And we uh, go to market and actually, uh, typically during success, we actually then uh, do more. And so the thing is that when you get into a conversation with people about what deal can be done now, we have such an honest and transparent relationship with people that really they will take it as far as they're comfortable. And, and that's really exactly where we got to on, on our recent deals was to really say to the people, okay, um, we expect really good rates right now, like incredible rates right now because of the scenario we're in. But it's got to work for you. It's got to work for you too because in five months' time, in six months' time, we're going to be talking again. And I need you to remember this moment as well as the one that's coming. And that really has meant that we have a very efficient process dealing with the media. And, um, and you know, and, and you know, that, that's the thing. If you know, if you know you're going to be in that room in six months time having the same discussion, you can't get away with nonsense and, and you shouldn't want to. So really, you've got to remember, I'm incredibly blessed to be representing a company that has had such success over a long period based on brilliant work from our team and, and, and our company, that puts me in a good position to think about the long term. And and you see that in our marketing as well, right? Because we are a long-term player. And so we build four-year campaigns, we build momentum, we invest in them. And that's borne out in having relationships in the creative and how you make it and then how you put it into the market. JK, thank you very much for your time. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Next. Virginia Highland sells her agency. So one of the last remaining independent media agencies has fallen. Brittany, you wrote this one. Is that what we're categorising it as, Tim? Are we categorising it as fallen? <laughs> that, that's a bit bleak. Um, I don't. I think- guess yes. In context, what I mean is uh, no longer independent. Sure. I don't know if Virginia and the team at Havas would say fallen because the Highland name will still live on, interestingly. so Well, they always do that when they sell, don't they? And then a few months down the line, the name is retired, usually once the um, the previous owner has reached their earnout and and departed. We will see. Um, Virginia has stepped into the role of managing director of the Highland Division, which is where her team will now sit. They will all have the same roles, do the same jobs, but just be part of kind of the Havas group. So, yeah, I think it's it's a big get for Havas and I think it's a show of strength at the moment particularly. You know, many holding groups in very difficult positions you know, WPP has just returned staff to full pay and salary, which was seen as, you know, a sign of strength from them after a couple of good months. So the fact that they're kind of throwing money into an acquisition like this, um, you know, I think says a lot. And, you know, I'm sure it's it's great for Virginia as well. And one of the things that I thought was interesting was um, when I first saw the announcement come through on Thursday morning, you know, I had been thinking to myself, well, the days of the last few independent media agencies being snapped up might be over because there was a period where all of the kind of holding companies seemed to want to have two or three media agency brands in each market. And sometimes the way they do that rather than just organically launching is they they buy an agency and rebadge it, you know, happened many, many times. Um, and I thought, well, these days, they all seem to be, be be actually taking names out of the market. You know, we saw saw you know MEC and Maxis merge to become WaveMaker over at WPP and so on. So my first thought was, how are they going to do that then? And of course, the answer is everything is going to be under the one brand. Um, and I guess the 
that that maybe will give a little bit of hope to the remaining independent agencies or the owners that they'll they'll still get a potential payday um because i guess it's effectively it's business that the holding companies can buy um who's left brit and who who might buy them god it's a big question i think there was a conversation earlier in the year about independent media agencies when the the new industry body launch which is independent media agencies of australia and what struck me when I was looking at that list of founding members that they launched with of 20 is Highland was really one of the biggest, if not the biggest, best known agency on that list. So a few others are, you know, the media store, which their biggest client is Toyota, which is still up for pitch at the moment. It went to pitch earlier this year. You've got Chimera on the list, Media Smiths, which has been in business a long, long time, and then, you know, a shop like Pam and Media. So there's no And of course Atomic two and two. Of course, yeah. They're not part of the IMAA as of yet. But yeah, there's not kind of a lot of big media agencies that still are independent left. And Virginia was always really vocal about, you know, the important role that indies played and and the importance of having an alternative to holding companies, which, you know, did make me interested in the announcement this morning. And it does make me wonder, you know, I'm I'm hopefully chatting to her very soon, you know, what she will say about did the benefit of of going with a holding company outweigh the benefit of staying independent in terms of what you're offering clients. Um, you know, she's always been very vocal about the importance of having diversity on the pitch list and, you know, approaching indies and all of that. So, look, I mean, WPP, I think, is always going to be in the equation when you talk about acquisitions or, you know, a, a big player that could snap up some of these littler players, particularly when you've got a new CEO, you know, Jens is coming up to, to 12 months, but still very much focused on this transformation strategy that he talks about every time, you know, he communicates to the market. They've bought, you know, a, a creative shop in Perth recently that they've rolled up into one. Meerkats. And yeah. So, look, it's always a possibility. I don't know if it's top of his to-do list right now. But, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the market looks like, you know, six, 12 months down the track. And I suppose, and I'm sure when she talks to you, Virginia will talk to this a bit, one of the things that struck me that maybe we weren't going to see the rise of many more independent media agencies in the future, certainly not sort of full service across all media buying and planning services, is the back-end technology you need now is so demanding that arguably you need a kind of global scale to actually access access it all. And then, of course, you know, when we chatted to Ben Lilly when he, he sort of took on the local franchise of McCann, Having the pipeline of international clients is another thing, which which, which you get obviously once you once you are kind of in a uh, uh, alignment with um, with an international owner. Yeah, I think Highlands always punched above its weight when it comes to the caliber of clients that it's working with. I mean, we also have to remember that it was set up in two thousand and five, so Virginia's had you know fifteen years to really build up this business. But, you know, one of their biggest clients is Coty. And, you know, I'm sure that for them, being part of Havas, you know, as you say, is really attractive because you've got the tech, you've got, you know, all of the things that a holding group brings to the table in terms of what it can offer and the resources that it has. Next, will we ever get to see a series final for The Masked Singer? So let's talk the week in TV, Hannah. And just before we get into the ratings, there was a bit of drama on set at The Masked Singer. There was. So moments before The Masked Singer was set to record its final episode, one of the dancers reported feeling ill, um, unfortunately then tested positive to COVID-19 in an outbreak, which is I think currently sitting at about 17 cases have been linked back to that one case, um, which is obviously not great news. Um, so the masking was forced to shut down, as I believe were a couple more productions that were at the same studio. Ten, of course, is saying that a final will happen. Um, you know, if anyone's tried to push through COVID-19 by pre- 
producing content anyway. It's been 10. The Bachelor was also hit by a COVID-19 lockdown, although not related to an outbreak. Um, So I think what we'll probably see is some sort of fancy Zoom-esque final episode, but they're promising it won't impact production schedules. So we might just see some kind of unwieldy mask reveals filmed in front of somebody's PC. Well, I suppose one of the things about this one was, um, well, a couple of things. It's not as if 10 were making a secret of the fact this was being recorded in Melbourne, despite it being under stage four lockdown. Our our, um, former colleague Vivian Kelly talked to Osha um, Gunsberg, the host, a few weeks back. And, uh, well, he he talked very um, specifically about what the safety precautions are. You know, television is a very intimate gig. You're often in a very confined space. People are touching you. You've got audio. You've got makeup. You've got wardrobe. You've got people touching your face with their hands. You know, you've got all kinds of stuff. It's a very closely packed job. Um, And, like, even down to, like, my audio guy, Shep, he won't hand me a microphone. He will hold the mic in his hand, he'll have the, the the wipe in his hand, in his other hand, with gloves on, he'll wipe it down and then hand it to me. So he's seen that he's sanitized, I've seen that he's sanitized it and he'll hand it to me. Like, it's, no one hands me anything that isn't already been wiped down. And that's everyone, that's everyone we're working with. So that wasn't long ago. So clearly they were, they were making plans even then for Mars Singer. Um, one of the things that did interest me though was, Although you know we you know we knew and had written about the fact that this was in production, um, we'd um, we'd also had done a story a few weeks back about um, uh, Foxtel's Wentworth being in production, and um, you know the only reason we ended up writing about that was because the PR accidentally emailed us when she meant to email the cast saying, "Don't anybody talk about the fact that we're in production." Um, I think the the implication being that. There might be a bit of a backlash from the public when they're stuck at home. Why is it that entertainment um, show, TV shows can still carry on, uh, you know, making uh, making television even in Melbourne? Um, what do we think? Is TV entertainment an essential service? I don't know that you can say it's an essential service from an entertainment point of view, but I think the conversation is a bigger one than that. I think Dan Andrews, uh, Premier Victoria said straight after the outbreak at the Mars Singer that if production weren't allowed to continue, then the whole thing would basically fall over and would be lost to Victoria, which is a beautiful sentiment. Um, But he also pointed out that everything is done on a case-by-case basis. There's always a COVID safe plan. As you just said, Osher Ginsburg made it very clear that the Mars Singer was following a COVID safe plan. They were being as careful as possible. I'm sure the debate is there to be had, but you also have to wonder, you know, we've just seen a results season where these companies are really struggling. If we get to a point where they're not able to make any content at all, what are we going to look like on the other side of this? Brett, one law for Jim's mowing and another for television. (laughs) Jim's mowing the the spokesperson or spokes company for, for everyone and everything. Um, Look, I'm a bit torn on this one. On one hand, I think, you know, it is hard to argue that entertainment is as essential as other businesses that, you know, um, are allowed to keep operating. On the other hand, as Hannah alluded to, you know, you think about the huge impact this has already had on the arts, entertainment and media industries, decimated, you know, jobs, in terms of the impact on on people who are crew and, you know, behind the scenes staff, it will impact them a lot more than it will impact, you know, Osher Ginsburg, who I'm sure, you know, would very much like the pay packet, but doesn't necessarily need it as much as, you know, a lot of those people working behind the scenes. So yeah, it's a hard one. Like we've got cafes and restaurants open, which arguably are also, you know, more for a a social benefit or a mental health benefit or an entertainment quote unquote benefit. Could you say the same for TV shows? I mean, look, The Masked Singer, I think, as we heard, Osher's been particularly vocal about the lengths that they went to. It wasn't enough, obviously. How can you how can you do the most you can and still be safe? Is that safe enough? I guess those are the questions 
that have to be answered. But yeah, interestingly, I feel, I think, slightly different about this than what I felt when we were talking about the return of sport. And, you know, maybe that says more about me than it does about whether or not there's actually a difference between those issues because, you know, it, it, it felt different when we were talking about NRL players saying that they should be exempt and that, you know, they should they should be allowed to keep doing their jobs. But, you know, then you look at the US and they've implemented more of like a bubble type scenario. So could we have that here? Could, you know, entertainment shows or TV networks implement network bubbles? I don't know. Hopefully we don't have to get to that point. But, yeah, it's a tough one. Brittany, I hear you loud and clear and what you're asking for is a UFC island style mass singer island where we just lock a bunch of celebrities, we put masks on them, we make them sing. Um, I think if TV companies with the amount of money they put into production and the amount of people who are involved in making sure a production goes really smoothly, I think if anyone's got a shot at being able to pull this off without causing some sort of giant outbreak it should be these tv companies so i think there is something to be said for that i think it's maybe a little bit different to jim's mowing just allowing all his mowers out there um but yeah i think the debate's there to be had it would be a shame though i think that if this outbreak completely ruins things going forward and hannah while we're on the subject of television uh, tell us about the week in ratings yeah, so I can remember a couple of weeks ago as saying, you know, we'd kind of reached a point where we were waiting for everything new to start. Everything new has started, or at least things have started finishing up. Obviously, the masking has started a couple of weeks ago now to a fairly quiet beginning of uh, 100,000 metro viewers, which was a bit of a disappointment, I think. Um, but it's pulling back again. The most recent reveal had 942,000 metro viewers, which is a lot closer to what it was doing in season one. If we hop across to seven, they've just finished up The Farmer Wants a Wife. That concluded this week. 923,000 viewers on that one, which is a great result, I think, for Seven. And obviously that show as well performed incredibly well nationally. It didn't do as strong as some of the other shows that were doing in Metro, but if you looked at the national figures, it was doing really well. Um, and James, of course, is very quick to point out that it's doing great across BVOD too. And then The Block is back for its 16th season, which is a massive and insane number. Um, 947,000 for the intro to that. It then dropped about 200,000 for episode two, but that's to be expected. I think it'll be interesting to see how well the block does. We've seen a lot about, you know, it being a really interesting season because they also had a COVID outbreak midway, or not an outbreak, sorry, they had a lockdown midway through their season. Um, yeah, interesting. Also, just to leap backwards a little bit to our discussions about results, Hugh Marks did say that some of Nine's uh, content is getting a little long in the tooth, shall we say, and a little bit expensive to keep going at this point. I pushed him on that to see if maybe we should expect some of these 16 season content pieces to disappear. And he said that absolutely was that not what he was saying. But it's quite interesting to think about, you know, the voice, the block. They've been sitting on TV for quite a while now. The block still seems to be performing quite well. The voice didn't have a fantastic season. Up front's just around the corner. I wonder if we'll start seeing some new announcements from Nine. That's an interesting point. And, of course, where it's an overseas format like The Voice, obviously it's also a, a, a contract and a license for that that um, was presumably signed um, long before the current situation. So um, who knows how many more seasons there are of that. that. And that was, thinking about it, that was something else I noticed in in sort of deep within seven's report as well was that um uh there seem to have made some provisions for onerous contracts whatever they are as much as i could make sense of them it appeared to be some of the formats they've got on their books they just don't think they're going to actually bring in the advertising revenues against them that it's going to cost them to do so so yeah i do wonder whether some of the more expensive overseas formats might be for the very least rested and do you wonder as well going forward if, you know, if you're someone like Hugh Marks or James Warburton and you've got to consider that maybe these production issues are just going to keep happening, you know, obviously all reports are pointing to the fact that we're likely to continue dealing with COVID until there is a vaccine and then at least until that vaccine can become something that's 
accessible globally, if you're looking at a show which you just cannot produce in any format other than the format it's currently being produced, and there's already a question as to whether that should continue being on your books, maybe those are the ones that we're going to see go from here onwards. It's probably a lot easier to produce something like Big Brother, say, if we're stuck in lockdown, because again, pointing back to that bubble... And that's it for this week, but before we go, Mumbrella 360 returns in a brand new virtual format as Mumbrella 360 Reconnected from November the 17th to the 20th, confronting the biggest issues impacting the industry as it goes through some of the most substantial changes in its history. We've already announced an incredible lineup of local and international speakers from Microsoft, McDonald's, McCann, Junkie Media, Magnite, K-Mint and the Ideas Business, with many more to be confirmed and revealed soon. Register your entire team now for as little as $69 a ticket. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash mumbrella360 for more info. That's it for this week, though. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Tim. Thank you. Toodle pip.